Well, we who are believers are citizens of a world which can't be seen. This has nothing to do with passports. You might have a UK passport. We are citizens of whichever country we live in. But we're also citizens of heaven itself. Now the UK would be better off, would it not, if all people were model citizens. People who didn't commit crime. People who put other people before themselves. But for us who are the people of heaven, it's far more important for us to be model citizens of that country. Now our author in the scriptures today, Paul, He's the one who tells us about this other country. Our citizenship is in heaven, he says. As far as I know, that's the only place in scripture where that word is used, citizenship. So we have here a description of certain people who were enemies of the gospel. Then Paul turns to another short description, but this time about the citizens of heaven. So I'd like us to think about those two different lists, those two different sets of people, and then turn to thoughts about how we can become the best citizens possible in this kingdom of God that we're in, a country whose capital is heaven itself. So the first thing we look at is the citizens of this present world. The citizens of this present world. So he begins the description in verse 18. He called them enemies of the cross of Christ. Enemies of the gospel. Enemies of the one who the gospel is about. The next thing he says about them, which is um, in verse 19, he says their end is destruction. Now when I read this, I, I suspected it might mean their end goal is destruction. Their end goal is to destroy good things. But I'm outnumbered by commentators who say that no, it is about the fact that these people, these enemies of Christ, like all enemies of Christ, face the destruction of themselves. The destruction of themselves. Unless they repent, they'll end up in a place of outer darkness. Forever. It'll be useful for me to point out right now that this uh, word that you read there, uh, destruction, this word destruction does not mean annihilation. It describes a state of utter ruin brought about by an eternal separation from God. No access to even the smallest of God's mercies. No consolation. No hope. Friends, you and I deserve to be in that place right now. We do. Because before we even knew our right hand from our left, we've proven our love for sin. By the time we reach adulthood, 
we've racked up such a weight of evidence against ourselves. It's unimaginable. And in all the days since then, all the days of our lives, thousands and thousands and thousands of days have passed. And incredibly and depressingly, we've managed to sin against God in every one of them. Yet, we've, we today, we find ourselves in the company of the redeemed. And for us, well, we were earmarked by God. We were earmarked to become examples of the grace of God. <coughs> but not, not these people. Not these people. Further on in verse 19. It said these people had made a God of their belly. What on earth does that mean? They've made a God of their belly. The truth is, the Bible tells us anything we devote ourselves to can become a God to us. Now, a good example is football. I could go on all day about this, but if you look at our two local teams, you'll see Everton as a motto. You're in my heart, you're in my soul. And it's not talking about God. Everton erected a giant poster opposite an evangelical church in Liverpool with three of their former best players on and the caption underneath was the blasphemous title, The Holy Trinity. It sure is their religion. Liverpool is no better. I remember giving some tracts out to the Liverpool fans, which said, is this your religion? And asked them that question pointedly. A few weeks later, a new item of merchandise appeared in Liverpool's shop at Anfield Stadium. It was a t-shirt, a red Liverpool shirt with this is our religion. And Anfield is our church. That's what he said. Well, before we get on our high horse, we need to remember that anything can become a God. And we are as susceptible as the football fans. For example, a big one is love for the family. If you love your children more than you love God, you have made them God's to you. And there's just so many other ways that we can make gods out of things. You just take a legitimate liking for something and you, you end up investing far too much of your heart into that thing and that legitimate thing becomes sinful and you won't even know it's happened. But what does it mean to make a god out of your belly? I still haven't answered this question. I'll offer two suggestions and then maybe uh, a third that is maybe most likely. Well, the first thought is making a god in your belly. It could be about gluttony. It's eating far more than you need. So, you know, we have to eat. Jesus ate. We're supposed to eat. But we, we just need to eat, you know, carefully. We don't stuff ourselves full of food. That's, that's gluttony. That's sinning. Another possibility is those who make a God out of the belly could be those who take too much care of themselves. That their, their obsession with finding the right balance of foods and nutrients to go in because they want to they live healthily and maybe live longer. Those people have made a God of, of their belly in a different way. 
It could be those things. I consider that so far in this letter, Paul has Paul has been warning them about a specific group of people. Over previous weeks, we've been looking at a particular type of enemy. And if Paul is still talking here about fake Jews, those who don't have the Spirit of God, it points us perhaps towards Jewish food laws. You might recall how the Jews have become obsessed with the outworking of the Mosaic law rather than the, the spiritual uh, understanding of it to go with it. They were obsessed, among other things, with food, eating the right food, make sure everything was done properly. It was so bad, Jesus, Jesus even said to them one day, he said, you seem to think that it's all about what goes in you, that that's what spiritually defiles you. It's not, it's what's coming out of your mouth that is defiling you. So it could be that, maybe, maybe it's that. You know, th these Jews, they, we said a few weeks ago about the righteousness of God. The Jews thought they could attain that righteousness through their own efforts. And, you know, they, they were fixated with ticking all the right boxes. They were more careful about ticking the boxes than they were about meditating on the spiritual things of God that were meant to accompany them. And in this way, a proper observance of Mosaic law became simple. Well, let's move on to the next thing Paul says still in verse 19. He says these people glory in their shame. So they glory in their shame, it says. So we might guess, well, it means they were proud of behaviours which were sinful. And that would be true. But if we think that Paul is dealing with this same group of people, there is a, a perhaps another explanation. And it's to do with circumcision. Because apparently they've been going around um, boasting about their circumcision and that is something Paul's already touched on. So, I'll concede here that something else may be meant, maybe it's nothing to do with circumcision, but that just seems the most likely at the moment. Without doubt, the same phrase about glorying in your shame could be applied to the present day, to the present day Liverpool. In fact, a few weeks ago, there was a group in our city marching around the city centre, showing they were proud that they indulged in practices which are repugnant to the word of God. And these people, even at the effrontery, to have the word pride all over the balance, proud, are proud to be doing these things that God hates. And they abused the Christian preachers there and they threw things at them and it was an indication of this sort of glorying and shame. So today, friends, we are surrounded by people who take those things that God calls evil and presents them as morally good. And the things that God does instruct about our attitudes and our actions, they 
ridicule and oppose those things. They call good evil, and they call evil good. Lastly, in verse 19, we have Paul saying that these enemies of God have their minds always on worldly things. We could say that's a summary of their whole, their whole uh, way of life. A man has always had this tendency. Most people who've ever lived have this... They have this idea that the material world around them is all that, that there is. That's why their focus is all on the here and now. What can we get out of life before we die? So they chase money, or they, they devote themselves to charity, or they, they maybe have uh, you know, uh, casual relationships with people. They maybe even get married and think that by, you know, we can just maybe, we'll just play happy families and we'll find fulfillment there. And friends, no matter how satisfied they tell you they are, the most important element for fulfillment in this life is missing because they don't have God. These enemies of God in Paul's day were were a right bunch. They were pretty wicked. It's no wonder in verse uh, 18 he says, he's, he's warned them. He's warned the believers about them. If you, you read Paul's other letters, he's, he's always telling them, watch out, be careful. Did you spot when we read that that Paul had been crying? Did you see that? Paul, it says Paul was crying as he wrote this letter. He was in tears. And, okay, you might say he had a deep love for, for, for the believers. That would be true. Remember, too, he may have been worn out, just physically worn out with all the opposition and all the responsibility. But I'd like to offer another explanation as to why Paul was so, uh, so upset. Now, I know he's been ripping these uh, Jewish uh, troublemakers to shreds with this very strong language, but let's not forget he still had an affinity with his own countrymen. He still felt a kind of belonging to, to that physical country. Now it seems to be frowned on today to have a special fondness for the people of your own nation. Now friends, I know it's true. We are supposed to have a, a, a love for the whole of humanity. There's not a single race, there's not a single people group on this planet that we don't want to be reached with the gospel. But it's okay to have a special fondness for your family, your circle of friends, uh, your, your community, your city maybe, and your country. It's okay. Paul has a love for his own countrymen. In his letter to the church at Rome, he describes it as his heart's desire that his fellow countrymen, the Israelites, would be saved, that they'd all turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. And his love for those who he had just a mere natural connection to was so great he came out with this astounding expression. He said that he'd go to God's eternal hell in their place. That's what he said. If such a thing was possible. You know, if God said, I'll save your countrymen, including all the ones who are trying to kill you, I'll save them all 
if you agree to spend eternity in the outer darkness, Paul says, I'd do it. I would do it. Well, I won't try to dress this up, friends. I don't have that level of love for the people of this land. I just don't. I'd suffer an eternal hell for a few people. My wife, my children, maybe some of you. But that's about it. You know, that's about it. Um, but it makes you think, doesn't it? That, you know, we say we love our neighbour. Do we honestly love them like Paul did? I doubt it. So they were the citizens of this world, and we'll look now at the citizens of heaven. So we have a look at verse 20. The citizens of heaven. So we see a shift now. He's describing believers. He includes himself. He includes uh, the people of Philippi. He includes all the Christians of that day. And he includes all the Christians who've ever lived, including us. He includes all of us. Our citizenship is in heaven. Did you get that? Our citizenship is in heaven. Because that is the very epicenter of this other world that we inhabit. It's the origin of all of us who've been born again. And it was at our conversion that we were made naturalised citizens of this heavenly Jerusalem. Now I know it's common for us to, we throw about these phrases, don't we, in, in churches. We say, we always talk about travelling to heaven. It's all about travelling to heaven. The picture in the Bible, believe it or not, is about heaven coming to us. When we pray, your kingdom come, we're asking for the power in heaven to influence our world. We want heaven to, as it were, come to us. So we might see the world turned upside down for God. In the book of Revelation, we see all of God's elect people who've ever lived uh, collectively viewed as a bride coming out of heaven. When we pray for our final deliverance, what's the last thing in the Bible? We ask that Jesus would come quickly from heaven to us. And what is the world to come if it is not a saturation of our universe with the influence and the beauties of heaven creating a paradise for us to live in? But right now we wait. We wait. We, we hope every day our Saviour will return. We're not idle. We carry on with our duty. But we're always hoping to, is today the day? No. Maybe tomorrow. Our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ is going to make an appearance, friends. The date and the year has already been established. There is some date out there like the 21st of April 2032. That's not a prophecy, it's an example. But an actual date when this long war of the ages will come to an end. When people will drop everything, they'll stop what they're doing. When the population of the world, I imagine, will be out on the streets wondering what is happening. And for us, well, I expect we'll know what's happening. If any of us are alive when that happens, we'll witness all the dead believers raised to life in a glorious new state. And seconds later, 
all the believers who are still alive will be changed will be changed on the spot verse uh, 21 verse 21 tells us our saviour himself will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body so those people alive all the brethren raised from the graves they'll all be together with the Lord a glorious day so friends people ask you why you look why you look every day is this the day that's why that's why we're looking for this almighty great glorious day I think we will probably I don't know we'll probably all be dead friends when he returns and as I said last time it is to be raised that is our great hope that was Paul's whole life his whole life was lived our lives are being lived for this one great goal the resurrection to be made alive to appear in glory to be part of a great reunion of the church of God down the ages to cry with joy and relief that you'll never ever suffer again to finally experience absolute sinlessness and to see Jesus to see Jesus in his glorified state and our confidence in all this is our belief in the power of Jesus Christ because verse 21 says it's the power by which he rules this world and will eventually subdue it that's the power and do you remember a few weeks ago when we tackled verses 10 and 11 I encourage you to pray for this power from on high that it might fill you and empower you to do great exploits for God. If your Christian walk is a faint one, and believe me, you're not alone, if you're not inclined to draw on this power from heaven, if your life as a believer is marked by little experience of the power of Christ, then your confidence in the resurrection will be weak. But the more we experience his power in our day-to-day -day service, the more confidence we have in that power, the more familiar we are with it, the stronger will be our belief in the resurrection. As sure as you are that you're going to die, you will be sure that you will be raised again. I said we look at two groups of people, and we have. And I said I would speak to you about how we become model citizens of this heavenly country so we've looked at those who make decisions in life based on only what they can see they have this horizontal perspective in their religion they are short-sighted and the decisions they make are bad their religion is not a heavenly one but a carnal one and there's us you're a believer, it's us. We understand there's more to life than this material world. We have a vertical perspective. In our religion, we consider the world to come. Eternity is never far from our thoughts. And because of this genuine spiritual connection between us and God, we're able to make some good decisions. Our religion is not a carnal one, but a heavenly one. But what we've done so far is we've highlighted um, 
that we who serve Jesus are citizens of a kingdom which isn't geographical but it's made up of a king and subjects who live in different places but yeah I said about becoming a model citizen of this heavenly kingdom that we find ourselves in it's not just that we have a duty a duty to reflect as far as possible the goodness of God it should be our delight to do it so how are the Philippians, how are they supposed to do this? Paul says, um, do as I do and do as I say. Paul presents himself to them, not only as a teacher in the church, but as a living example. Don't just listen to my teachings, he says. Uh, watch the way I act and copy it. That might sound really presumptuous. What we need to remember is, this was a generation that didn't have the word of God like you do. Yeah, it's not, they didn't even have copies of the Old Testament tucked under their arm. Remember the printing press was hundreds of years away. Perhaps that will make you a bit more appreciative of your Bibles. You, you don't just have access to the Bible, even like the great Bible chained in a church, which, which is great. You have it in printed form. You have your own copy. I bet you don't even have just one copy. You have more than one copy. You, you, you are overloaded with blessings by having this word of God. You can even, you can even view it like I do on a computer or even on a, on a phone, if that's your thing. For the early Christians, no Bible to speak of. One of the best ways they could learn Christ-likeness was to have role models. And Paul not only presents himself as one who sets an example worth following, but he directs the people towards others. Look out for others who are Christ-like. And when I'm not there, you know, emulate them. Now obviously Paul didn't want people to see him, you know, losing his temper and start saying, right, we need to start kicking off all over the place. Of course not. Paul, um, it's obvious to everyone that's the case. So we can perhaps sum it up in this way. Paul wanted them to copy him in whichever ways he copied Christ. And he said that to the church in Corinth in, in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. He says, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. This means that if they succeeded in copying Paul in all those good ways, they weren't really becoming like Paul at all. They were becoming more like Christ. Now, not everyone liked Paul. There were some in the church, and I'm sure some of them were genuine believers, and, but they, they, they didn't like him. They didn't like all his funny habits or the way he spoke or his haircut or something. But some people didn't like him. And so that they're not going to want to have Paul as their role model. But if people found it difficult to avoid thinking about Paul's failings, they could at least copy him in his expressed desire to be more like Jesus Christ. So today, friends, we have here, we have here a standard 
that is far, far superior to what Paul offered. God blessed us with our own copy of this, this, this Bible of ours. So obey God's word and you can become more and more a better citizen of heaven. So here it is, this magnificent guidebook to life and eternity in our hands. But I don't mean that we've done away with the idea of role models. Truth is, uh, I should be a model. Shouldn't I? I should be a perfect model of Christ-likeness for you to follow. I should. And I'm not. And there's no excuse for it. I want to be that person. I do. But I fall over every day. If only I could be the person Paul wanted Titus to be when he said to him, Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity, he said. Well, I'm not. But the truth is that I am supposed to be some kind of role model. If I said to you, um, you shouldn't copy me in any respect whatsoever because everything I do is wrong. Well, how can I even be a believer? More the point, why have you allowed me to stand in this pulpit today? I'd be denying the grace of God in my life if I tried to sound, you know, too humble and say, oh, I'm awful. I'm awful in every respect. The grace of God has enabled me to do some good works. The grace of God has given me a degree of integrity and dignity that Paul urged on Titus. And so I need to keep on praying that God would help me in those things to meet me at the point of my uh, lack. I should, I should surely want to reach at least the point where Paul was. But for now, let, let me suggest this. If you think I have a genuine desire to stop sinning, have the same mind. If you think I sincerely want more of the power of God at work in my life, you should think that way too. If you see me at any time act in a Christ-like fashion, by all means, friends, copy that. Copy me. Just remember this. You're not copying me at all. You're emulating Jesus Christ. My actions will be nothing but a mirroring of his. Any graciousness you saw in me is just a reflection of what's in him. But what about you folks? Some of you have been Christians far longer than I have. Should we copy you? Should we copy you who've been Christians for years and years? If not, why not? Why not? You men, are you, ask yourself, are you a role model for future church leaders? You ladies, are you, are you providing a, a good example for the next generation of young women and, and, and future wives? If not, well, let this exhortation from the scriptures today be a turning point. Let be, uh, today be a turning point whereby you start fresh to become the person you should be. It doesn't matter if you're inspired by someone you see, something you hear preached, something you read in the scriptures. It amounts to the same thing. You're aiming for Christ-likeness, and that's a good thing. And if you do that, you're well on track to becoming a model citizen of heaven.
Friends, there's just a couple more points that Paul makes that we'll brush on. In the first verse of chapter 4, it tells us to stand firm. Stand firm. Satan wants to shove you in a ditch. Through temptation, he wants to shove you in a ditch and just disrupt your service with God. Don't let him stand firm. The citizens of Babylon, the evil people in the world around us, the enemies of God, they want to scare you into cowering in a corner. They want to make you ineffective. Don't let them stand firm. And then there's that sinfulness in the flesh, that sinfulness in our own bodies, which makes us want to indulge every desire of that sinful nature so that you offend God and it disturbs your relationship with him. Don't let it. Paul says, stand firm. Christy, a friend of mine, used to be a doorman, a bouncer, you know. And <coughs> one day he had to stop a fight in a pub in Liverpool town centre. And so he went over to one lad to remove him from the situation, to defuse the thing, but this lad wouldn't move. I mean, and my friend was massive, Carrington. He was mad, he was twice as big and heavy as this lad. But he, he couldn't he couldn't shift and this lad was solid and, and my friend concluded that it looks like this lad's been trained, highly trained as a boxer. And so he was like he was like a rock. He was immovable. And brethren, you too are to be highly trained in the same way. Trained as soldiers of Christ. You're to grow in strength and become immovable. So when the world, the flesh, or the devil tries to move you from that place of readiness, you'll stand firm. Listen to this old hymn I found. Amid the battle's raging fury, standing firm. Face the legions dark before thee, standing firm. In the strength of our Redeemer, make the powers of hell surrender. Be a valiant overcomer, standing firm. And remember, friends, you're not a one-man army. You have your brothers and sisters. What does Paul say about his fellow Christians? He loves and longs for them. And they are to him his joy and his crown. During your education and training to become a model citizen of God's kingdom, you are to foster the same attitude as Paul. Love your brethren. Love your brethren. Love them so much, you're counting the days down until you can meet them again. Love them so much, you take every opportunity to meet with them. Love them, friends, so much that you'll devote your life to helping them become model citizens of heaven. And being there, allow them to help you become the same. Amen.